0: And welcome to the Shelf Care Interview Podcast. I'm Sarah Hunter, editor of the Books for Youth and Graphic Novels sections at Booklist Magazine. We have another special installment today as part of our Graphic Novels and Libraries Month celebration. In addition to these podcast interviews, we're hosting two panels of comics creators. You can watch the archived recording at www.booklistonline.com slash webinars. Also, don't miss the supplement to our July issue, Booklist Guide to Graphic Novels and Libraries, which is currently live on our website and free for all users, along with all other Booklist online content, through the end of September. In today's supersized installment, we have the pleasure of hearing from Mike Curado about his debut graphic novel, Flamer, John Patrick Green, creator of the Investigators series, and Natalie Reese and Sarah Getter, creators of the fantasy adventure, Dungeon Critters. Thank you to Macmillan Children's Publishing Group for sponsoring the Shelf Care Interview. We're here with John Patrick Green, who is a human with the human job of making books about animals with human jobs, such as Hippopotamister, Kid Construction Company, and Investigators. John is definitely not just a bunch of animals wearing a human suit pretending to have a human job. He is also the artist and co-creator of the graphic novel series Teen Boat with writer Dave Roman. John lives in Brooklyn in an apartment that doesn't allow animals other than the ones living in his head. Thank you so much for being here today, John. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about Investigators.
1: Well, Investigators is a chapter book graphic novel about two alligators named Mango and Brash who solve crimes wearing vests. But these vests aren't just normal vests, they're V-E-S-T's, which stands for very exciting spy technology. And the vests uh, help disguise the alligators so they can go undercover in all kinds of different jobs, and they're kind of sort of like Batman's utility belt, where they'll have all sorts of gadgets and equipment that can pop out. And Mango and Brash, they work for an organization called SUIT, S-U-I-T, which stands for Special Undercover Investigation Teams. And they get called in for more unusual types of mysteries, such as dealing with a supervillain called Crackerdile who was also once an agent before he fell into a vat of radioactive saltine dough. And that's basically,
0: I think that kind of sums it up. (laughs) That's a really good description. Uh, Really lively cartooning, bright colors it's probably like the dictionary definition of a romp i would say <laughs> that's a good that's a good one yes
1: yes <laughs> they're definitely it is definitely like a buddy silly buddy comedy wacky zany and yeah bright and colorful
0: so what are some of your inspirations for the series well it's a, it's funny it's a little bit of everything like when
1: i'm making each individual book you know my influences kind of come from everywhere but I'll say like for the creation of this series, not so much an inspiration, but more of like a motivating factor in its creation was after doing Hippopotamister and the two Kitten Construction Company books, which were both like early reader books, my publisher asked if I had any ideas for, you know, a silly, wacky chapter book graphic novel series. And they deliberately wanted like a, a series. And that made me dig out all the comics that I drew when I was a little kid, when I was like 10 or 11 years old, because I knew that with a a chapter book is a little different than an early reader in terms of the the audience in a degree. Because with like early reader books, it's usually the parents and the guardians and the grandparents who are going to be looking at these and deciding that they want to read those books to their children. And with chapter books, you're kind of aiming more for the actual kid to be the one to decide that, yes, this is something they want to read. So I was kind of thinking of, I need to connect with kids on kind of a different, a little bit of a different level in a way. And so so I dug out all the comics that I was making when I was the age group for the target audience. And looking at them reminded me not so much of what inspired me to like create comics, but what the result of that inspiration was, kind of meaning like, when I was a kid I loved Star Wars and like <laughs> X-Men and G.I. Joe and Spider-Man, you know, I was a you know product of the 80s and those things inspired me, but it didn't they didn't really inspire me to make Star Wars comics or to make Spider-Man comics. I would take all those things and you know, the toys and the movies, and I would mash them up with my own sensibilities. And I would draw comics that would be like a mix up of like, say, a James Bond spy story that's drawn in the style of Garfield. (laughs) But with like a bad guy who is my own version of like Jason from Friday the 13th, (laughs) Um, you know? And so like I absorbed, as as this little kid, I absorbed mainstream media like a sponge and like all you had to do was squeeze me and it would come out as these dainty drawings and comics. And I made those to basically just make myself laugh or like make my brother laugh or other friends laugh. And, and so for Investigators, uh, a big part of forming what the series is, you know, w- w- what Investigators is, was just kind of recapturing that attitude I had as a kid. And instead of like taking something like Star Wars and saying, OK, I'm going to make a science fiction story, just mashing up everything that I liked and just creating in a sort of flying by the seat of my pants kind of way. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. What? So I'm assuming that when you were working on the series, you actually went back and looked at a lot of those comics that you did when you were a kid? Yes, I did. Literally like
1: um, a a few, a number of years ago at this point. So when, when I, from like fourth grade up until junior high, I made these, I created these comic characters called the footsies, which were basically just other kids, you know, just kids like me, so to speak, and friends, uh, but everyone had big feet. So every character, if they're a dog, animal, everyone just had big feet. And I used them to make these crazy little stories that I would, you know, I would photocopy and staple together, and then I would sell them to kids at school. And so <laughs> and I did that all the way up until I got into high school, like the last one I made, I think you know it was freshman year and so and you know kids other kids they they, they love them I you know I can't remember I, I made like nine or ten issues quote-unquote but then maybe at this point it was probably about 10 years ago that I I found them all in my mom's attic my mom never would like never throw anything away so so she still had them all and I wasn't careless with them like i put them in a box and you know when, when I was little mm-hmm. uh but I but then I found them and i decided to scan them all and put them into like one giant book and i just did like a print on demand uh a few copies of this massive like 4 or 500 page <laughs> tome and i gave it and I, like i gave one to my mom as like a birthday present or something but you know i have one on on my shelf so i dug that i literally dug that out to to go through and be like okay what are some of the stupid jokes that don't make any sense to an adult that I was making as a kid because I know I can totally just just recycle those same jokes.
0: That's amazing. What a treasure trove. Okay. (laughs) That's great. I find that so delightful. So you, I feel like there's a a strong theme of puns running through the books that you've written. I'm thinking about Teen Boat, which is a title that always made me chuckle because it made me think (laughs) of Teen Beat Magazine. And in, this conversation that we had at a dinner a long time ago, you were working on Kitten Construction Company, but at the time it seemed really to be based around the name House Cat, which also made me chuckle a lot. So, and then of course, Investigators is pretty self explanatory. So, do the puns come first or does the story come first for you? Well, well it, it varies. I think when
1: it comes, when I title things i sometimes have either a title or or just a premise that kind of just immediately leads me to a title and then i'll construct come up with a story based on that mm-hmm. so yeah how the kitten construction company was originally house kittens mm-hmm. because of the term house cat and it seems like if you have if if house cat is a thing why don't people say house kittens and so I made the story based on that initial wordplay. But once I once I have something, like so investigators, once I have investigators, now I have to construct a larger story. And it, it kind of fluctuates. I'd say for the most part, the story is, you know, pe- once I'm past the title, the story is what comes first. Mm-hmm. And I, while I'm doing the art of one book, I'm trying to think of ideas for the next book in the series. And sometimes I'll think of a gag that is funny enough that I'll say, okay, I want to make sure there's a part in the story (laughs) where I can make that gag Mm -hmm. uh, and use that joke. And sometimes that works, other times it doesn't. But when I think of a, a joke that is like it's oh this is too good to pass up, I'll like reverse engineer the story, make sure I get there. But it just it has to be a really good joke and it can't Feel like the whole point of it was just to make a joke, right? You know, it has to kind of feel organic and have purpose. So, but then, you know, even if I think of the narrative first and find places to add jokes to it, or I think of jokes and then construct a narrative around them, the end goal is really the same, which is just to tell an enjoyable story. So, yeah, I think it's kind of a mixture of both.
0: I have a specific question about investigators is and you may not be able to answer this question, but I'm going to ask anyway, because I'm interested. Is there a redemption arc in the future for Cracker Dial? Because honestly, I just sort of feel bad for him.
1: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, regardless of my answer, I figure it's it's a bit of a spoiler. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I, I will say he's he's relentless, and you definitely you definitely won't see the end of the character anytime soon.
0: That feels like a very diplomatic answer to that question.
1: Yeah, <laughs> he. I mean, he may not necessarily be a cracker for very long. Who who, who knows? <laughs> there, there's so much. There's so much going on. It's kind of it's, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> But I will say that the um, emotional attachment that I have to that character as a villain, there is definitely like the question of, is he really a bad guy or not? or what made him bad, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So the aspect of, is there, uh, like, I like that you're questioning, can there be a redemption arc (laughs) for this character? Because I want kids to connect with the good guys and the bad guys on more than just that superficial level of they're either good or they're bad. You know, there's more complexity to it than that.
0: That's a great segue to my next question, which is what do you hope readers will take away from your books? Well, (laughs) I hope they, I
1: just, mostly I just hope it makes them smile. I know that's kind of corny, but for me, that's, that's like all it takes for me to feel like I did a good job. I, I, you know, one, one thing about comics, the comics industry or people that make comics in general, like now with kids, comics are a bit more mainstream in terms of there's a lot of librarians that support them and and parents are more accepting of them as being reading and and different stores more mainstream bookstores are selling them and that that's great but so so for me having like what before all that and i was just making comics and trying to sell them in the comics industry it's it's very easy for a comic creator to sort of get jaded Hmm. and i this is true of course for any artist to be like get get jaded and suddenly even if you do get positive responses you're kind of like yeah you're a little bitter about the whole thing uh, but I feel kind of rejuvenated with investigators. And so I, I kind of feel like like I, maybe I'll get jaded again and, and making a kid smile <laughs> won't be enough for me anymore. <laughs> but with investigators, you know, a lot of thought does go into the plot and the development of these characters over a number of books. But I really, I just want the kids to have enjoyed the time that they've spent with them, you know, and had fun, gotten a few laughs, there's, there's less of a message, I'd say, to investigators, at, at least compared to Hippopotamister and Kitten Construction Company, where there was sort of, I wouldn't necessarily say a, an agenda, but just there's something beneath the surface that is very, very clear to adult readers mm-hmm. that you hope the kids pick up on when they read them. And investigators is, is while I want the, the characters to have some complexity, if a kid just reads it and just chuckles and you know and says, Yeah, that was good, then I, then, then I'm like, thumbs up. Hooray.
0: <laughs> that's great. That's a that's a really and I'm not being facetious here. That is an admirable goal. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so can you tell me about a time that libraries or librarians impacted your reading or your writing life? Yeah.
1: so so hopefully this hopefully this won't be another long story but so the biggest impact that libraries had on me well I guess there's two but mostly it was when I was a little kid so basically since birth I have had terrible asthma and allergies it's much better now Uh, I'm able to go outside (laughs) or you know I would be if there wasn't a pandemic but as a kid my asthma was so bad that doctors wanted to put me in a bubble whoa and so these doctors you know i think i was diagnosed at like three months old or something and doctors told my mom that if i wasn't isolated i would be lucky if i made it past 18. oh my god and so my mom called these doctors a quack (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and course, she called them quacks and she got me a new doctor. <laughs> and uh, and this new doctor had uh, was a little more optimistic. He definitely agreed that it's like your kid's not healthy and he <laughs> needs medication and stuff. But I basically became like a lab rat for new medication, asthma medications and treatments and all that sort of stuff for my entire child experience, like from... As far as I can remember, I still would go to the hospital all the time. I was still sick all the time, but I was able to go to public school. And, you know, when I was healthy enough to play outside and all that sort of stuff, I was, quote unquote, a regular kid, but I was still absent a lot in, I think, seventh grade, which is like junior high. like I, that, that was kind of my, my worst. And one year of school, I missed 92 days. Wow! Out of, I think, 180 days in an average school year. And I think if you add up all my absentees from my entire life as a kid, school kid, I I obviously I have to have at least missed one full year of education, but I was still a good student. And part of that has to do with the how libraries made it accessible for me to to like get books and and keep up with homework and have a when it was possible a, a school like environment that I could go to when I was unable to be at school or like when school was not in session and stuff like that so that <laughs> definitely definitely was a lifesaver. <laughs> I'd say that is, that's definitely the biggest, biggest impact. And I don't know what I would do. What, what would have happened to me if there weren't libraries? And of course, you know, there's the schools itself, they all had libraries. And they, I think that that can be included in the notion that if I didn't have access to books and stuff, I, there's no way, like I, I would have, I may as well have just been in a bubble and had no access to anything outside in the world if there weren't libraries around you know, and it wasn't just books, you know, there's libraries had, it, you know, this was the, the burgeoning era of home computers, but you could go to a library and use computers and, and get movies and sometimes computer games and board games and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, I don't know what I, where I'd be without them. And now as a professional who makes books, you know, libraries are definitely a huge part of that because there are other kids out there like me or that have, a life experience that results in them needing libraries. And and librarians are, of course, a child's gateway into being introduced to, you know, life experiences by way of books and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, and, and I'm just, I'm, I, I feel, I, I'm excited when I know that a library has my book you know, it's and, and or that the notion that my books would be something that libraries would be proud to have on their shelves. I don't know, proud is proud is maybe too self-aggrandizing a word, but somewhere, <laughs> somewhere between proud and ashamed is where you know, <laughs> uh, that I am glad that that my books, that teachers and librarians are glad when they tell me how glad they are that they discovered my book and they like they enjoy sharing it with kids and stuff.
0: Well, I think that's all we have time for. It has been such a pleasure talking to you about investigators and hearing about your childhood comics. I still am delighted by this um, (laughs) treasure trove of basically zines that you did when you were in junior high. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you again for joining us today and looking forward to the next book in the series.
1: Thank you. And I look forward to hearing what everyone thinks about it.
0: I'm here with Mike Curado. He's the author and illustrator of the Little Elliot series and has illustrated a number of other books for children, including Worm Loves Worm. Flamer is Mike's first graphic novel, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. So Mike, tell us a little bit about Flamer.
2: Uh, well, Flamer is a um, story of Aiden, a chubby teenage Filipino white mixed kid who is away at scout camp the summer before his first year of high school. And the year is 1995. And Aiden has to navigate friendships, bullying, racism, body image, all while confronting his sexual identity.
0: Awesome. And I also think it's worth noting that the artwork is just really striking. There are these beautiful sort of like charcoal line drawings accented with this flamey red palette that pops up every now and then. And it's really striking, that contrast with the fairly simple lines and then this like rich image of fire.
2: Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's actually, for the record, <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, it's black colored pencil with ink washes. Ooh. Yeah. And then, yeah, the color is also in ink. So it was a little bit of a departure for me because I'm, I'm usually really tight with my work. And this, I wanted it to be loose and a little rough around the edges to get the rawness of the story across.
0: Yeah. That segues perfectly into my next question, which is, um, you're really well known for your picture books, notably the Little Elliot series about the adorable little elephant. And this is a big departure from that. How did this book come about and how was working on it different from your other books?
2: Yeah, um, it is very different. (laughs) There are no cute elephants or cupcakes in this book. Um, There is some levity, but it's very serious also. But basically, this was a story that, first of all, is very personal to me because a lot of it is based on my personal experience. And growing up, I never saw myself in a book or on a screen, and I was constantly bullied for who I was. And that's a story I think is important to share because, you know, after being bullied for so long and not seeing myself in the world, I started to wonder if I belonged in this world. And that is a big component of this book, you know, facing who you are and ultimately learning to love who you are, despite other people telling you that you're not worthy of that love. Right now, the way things are in our country, LGBTQI youth are at a way higher risk of suicide, self-harm, homelessness than their straight peers. So this wasn't just a book for me. I mean it, it is it is a book for me and I did work through a lot of I guess unresolved pain in some ways, but it's more for the kids out there who don't feel safe in their own skin. Like, I've come a long way. I feel happy with the person I am, and I want my readers to know that they are valued and that they do belong here. And it's also important for people who don't have that experience to be able to have a peek at what it's like for someone who is queer-identified or, you know, just not part of mainstream culture to be able to understand how difficult that journey can be so that hopefully there's more compassion in the world.
0: I'm I'm veering a little bit from our questions here but something you said I found very provocative. You said that mm-hmm. writing this book was sort of working through pain. Can you elaborate a little bit on that if you'd like?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm oh, here's here's a big reveal cuz People, I know people are curious, but I'm 39 years old. Okay. Like I've been around for a minute and I've been an adult now more than I've been a kid, although there's still very much a kid at work in my brain every day. But so I'm in charge of my own life now, right? I have agency. And, you know, when I when I moved away from home. And could like live on my own and make my own decisions, be friends with who I wanted to be friends with, date who I wanted to date, love who I wanted to love. You know, there was a lot of running towards the acceptance and away from the pain that I did experience as a child. So having to go back to that brought up a lot of hurt, of old hurts. Mm -hmm. And I do feel more resolved about things now than I did going into the book. I mean, I started working on this, I think I had the idea in like 2011, and then didn't really start digging into writing until 2014. But yeah, it it brought up a lot, and the more I've thought about it these days, since we're, I think everyone is being very introspective given the the present climate. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about what can I do to dismantle my little part of the system, that holds me down. I think a huge part of that is dismantling your own shame. And that is something I, you know, I'm still working on. And we all carry shame of different colors and I know what mine is. So making this book is a big deal for me because I'm very lucky that I have this platform to say like, no, like I'm not ashamed of who I am. And I do belong here. And I'm not going to be quiet about it either. So that's been my whole (laughs) revelation during this. Is like, okay, not only do I need to not carry that shame myself, not only do I need to put that aside, but I need to be like loud about it and say, you know, that's really not okay that that shame was put on me because that's learned, right? We're not born ashamed of who we are. We learn to be ashamed of who we are through all sorts of avenues. So that is, (laughs) is that's a big personal takeaway for me.
0: Yeah, that's, oh, that's amazing. That's so powerful. So in this project, you made a choice to turn this story into fiction rather than autobiography. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to what made you make that decision and how you sort of balanced what was fictional and what you drew from your own
2: reality? Yeah, I think there were a lot of things at play. I mean, I my starting place was writing down memories, was just remembering, oh my gosh, reading old journals <laughs> from when I was a kid. <laughs> and I also had, so in the book, Aiden has a pen pal named Violet but I, that's based on something real. Like I had slash have a pen pal, Lara, who the book is dedicated to. And one of the greatest gifts she's ever given me was she transcribed all of the letters that I wrote her when I was a teenager and sent them to me. And it was like this amazing resource library for me. i like, oh my God, like painfully awkward. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I don't ever want anyone to read these. Oh my God. It's <laughs> hilarious and just devastatingly humiliating. Um, So anyway, so I had a great wealth of, you know, like stories to pick from. And then also thinking about my time in the Scouts, which was so influential. The scouting gave, gave a lot to me in both coming out of my shell and um, in some challenges as well. Sorry, I don't want to get too far away from the question. But so, yeah, so I started in fact. Mm-hmm. And then, but the arc that the main character takes in a week, you know, everything that happens in the book didn't necessarily take place in that short amount of time for me. Mm-hmm. And something that I am very open about is that uh, so spoiler alert, there is suicide ideation in the book. And I did go through that as a teenager. And I knew and I was in denial about my sexuality. I think Aiden in the book is a lot more honest with himself and can see and understand like, oh, I can name this feeling. I, I know that I care for this other boy. And, you know, it takes him a minute to get there in the book. But that that happens within a week. Yeah. So part of it was trying to fit that experience into a more condensed time frame. And, you know, of course, it made it all much more dramatic leading up to his big decision. And, you know, there were things that happened in the book that didn't necessarily happen to me, but are based on things that do happen or it just helped advance the story more. Uh, yeah. And the book is set up each chapter is a day of the week. So that's what was kind of working for me. And I'll be totally honest, you know, this was my first long format book and I was terrified. (laughs) Like, oh my God, it's so big. How will I do it? It's impossible. Uh, So having that structure of like, okay, it's a week at summer camp. Each chapter is a day. And each day has like a schedule, like a literal schedule for camp. Like you have this class at this time and then you have lunch and then you have this class. So it helped everything become a little more cohesive, I think.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I didn't really put that together about how structured a day at camp is and how it would help structure a narrative, but that's so handy. It is.
2: (laughs) And I just want to say as a sidebar to that, as someone who was a camper and, you know, when I was older, became like a counselor, actually at a camp for queer kids, which was amazing. I can say that one week of summer camp there is so much drama packed into one week for a can account. camp. Oh yeah. So I don't, I actually don't think this book is too far off the mark in that regard <laughs> where it's like, yeah, no, I could totally see all this going down in one week. Mm-hmm.
0: I definitely had some flashbacks to my own summer camp experiences in the nineties when reading that book. Oh yeah. Nice. If there's one thing that I remember from summer camp, aside from like, frozen Snickers bars from the camp oh. canteen once a, day, once a day was just endless drama. Endless yeah. non-stop
2: drama. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you could be at the top of your social triangle at breakfast mm-hmm. and be like a social pariah by dinner. I mean, <laughs> the tide turns quickly.
0: Tell me a little bit about how libraries have impacted your reading or writing life.
2: Uh Well, since we're talking about being a teenager, I have to give a shout out to my high school librarian, Mrs. Avery, if you're out there listening. So she, so my safe spaces at high school were the periodical room, which was Mrs. Avery's in the library and the art room, which was Mrs. Nichols. So those were like my places that I could be and feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure Mrs. Avery's retired now. So I'm going to come out and say She would occasionally let me even like sneak lunch in there, like, <laughs> but she and some of my friends and I would just like talk, you know, I just go in there and talk and do homework and whatever. So I love libraries because they are alternative spaces for teens. And I, I love seeing, I've seen on tour in the last few years, more and more libraries creating a specific, like, room for teens Mm. which I love and I hope more libraries get into that Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's like their own space because you know there's there's just such a lack of places to for for teens to go yeah you know so so there's that (laughs) and and now as as a a grown-up uh boring grown up, I still rely on libraries for doing a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just like taking out books for funsies, but I do a lot of research and, you know, I do get help from librarians. The picture books, especially, especially Little Elliot, because it's a period piece. I do a lot of digging in archives and Ugh, I remember being in the Schwartzman library in New York city with like a mountain of books on a table. I was like that person <laughs> and like feverishly flipping through books. And I spent the better part of a day just trying to find what the fence along the water down at battery park used to look like in 1939, like <laughs> happy Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the librarians thought I was insane, but nothing out of the ordinary though. Right. Uh, So yes, so I'm very grateful for libraries, for helping my mad pursuits.
0: That's wonderful. I'm sure so many librarians will be happy to hear that.
2: Yes, yes. Keep on fighting the good fight. (laughs) And also, I also want to give a shout out because I personally know librarians and booksellers, but there are librarians out there who are hand delivering books to people's homes right now during quarantine. Yeah. that's amazing. My library here in Northampton, they're doing curbside, like bless our hearts. Like it's, they're, they're making it, they're making it work, yeah. which of course I'm not surprised because librarians are the most resourceful people on earth. So.
0: <laughs> okay. So we're at our last question, okay. uh,
2: which should be an easy one.
0: When you're not reading or drawing or writing or drawing, what do you like to read?
2: Ooh, well, I mean, of course I love reading graphic novels. Mm-hmm. Um I love graphic novels, but I also love history. I specifically, one interesting genre I'm into is like biographies of royal women. I've thought about why and I'm like, okay, maybe part of it is that I'm imagining like all the amazing fashion, but also it's, I think it has a lot to do with people, like underdogs in power, right? So, you know- women who ruled in a time where women didn't have power and that, that weird dynamic of, you know, she has absolute power, but does she, it's like, she has to fight for her place, even though she's at the top.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is an interesting dynamic.
2: Yeah. I, I just, I love it. I, I've read a lot of Alison Weir, uh, mostly biographies. She also writes novels, but uh, so that's one interesting genre I'm into. I also love essays. So David Sedaris, Samantha Irby, Roxane Gay. Uh, I also read a lot of middle grade that I ignored. So back in the day when I was only reading comics, we're like, oh, this book report, I'm just going to read the cliff notes. Now I'm like, okay, I want to read Bridge to Terrapithia. Um, I want to read Judy Bloom. I want to read like all this stuff that I missed out on. So that's been awesome. And it's so funny too, right? Because I'll like finish what I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Did you hear about this? <laughs> it's like, everyone's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> We've all heard about it. Yeah, I also love like queer YA fiction, obviously. Uh, ooh, you know, some fiction I love. I I love Madeline Miller's work and I need her to write more ASAP. So she wrote Song Song of Achilles, which has LGBT undertone to it, but it's like ancient Greece. Yeah. Get into it. And Circe. Mm
0: -hmm. So
2: I love those stories because they take, she takes these classical Greek myths and then weaves them all together through this masterful storytelling. It's really beautiful. Like I read Circe twice. Anyway. And I'm just like, come on, come on, come on. Like,
0: (laughs) (laughs) write faster,
2: write faster. (laughs) But right now, I'm reading On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong, Mm. which is like what it's. So, Ocean, who actually lives, I didn't even realize this when I started reading, but he actually lives nearby me. It is, he's a poet and it's about his relationship with his mother. And they moved here from Vietnam when he was a boy. And it's, I don't even know how to describe it. I'm not going to describe it because I'll fail. <laughs> um, I'll just say that it's like devastatingly beautiful. And I'm also reading The Body Is Not An Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And I, I follow her on Instagram too. And she's always talking about some really deep truth, you know, like, and I think that's the cornerstone of a good book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It's like, if you are bringing some truth to light, especially if you dove deep down, you know, to, to dig that up and bring, and bring it up. Mm -hmm. It's just so impactful. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously we could keep ranting about books, but I'll, I'll just, (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave that there.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great
2: point to stop
0: on. Thanks so much for being here, Mike, and having such a great conversation with me about books.
2: Thanks, Sarah. It was so awesome to talk with you today.
0: I'm here with Natalie Reese and Sarah Getter, a creator of Dungeon Critters. Natalie Reese is a cartoonist from Pennsylvania. She now lives in Austin, Texas, where she makes comics with her girlfriend and gets yelled at by their beautiful cat. She loves to draw food, nature, and horrible plant monsters. Her previous titles include Space Battle Lunchtime and Snarl Bear. And we are also joined by Sarah Getter. Sarah is a Pennsylvania-born, currently Austin-based cartoonist where she draws comics with her girlfriend. She specializes in drawing goofy faces and dumb jokes and cries whenever she thinks about frogs too much. And we are here to talk about Dungeon Critters, which is delightful. I'm very excited to talk to you about it today. So Natalie and Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Dungeon Critters? Sure. Do you want to start?
3: Sure. Uh, This is Sarah, Sarah Getter. So our book is a, it's a middle grade fantasy adventure story about a group of animal adventurers who, it starts out with like, they have to perform a heist, but it turns into like a larger, like noble conspiracy kind of thing. I don't know if you wanted
4: to expand on that. Yeah, no, it's like your typical goopy sword and sorcery story. Again, there's conspiracies, there's evil plants, there's lots of fun hijinks.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, every... <laughs> That normal fantasy thing where there's evil plans. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Basically what happens is they start out investigating something small and they have to do like a little heist to investigate. And then they uncover this greater plot about, you know, this evil plan and this plot to kill the royal family. It's, you know, you'll read it. You'll like it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And one thing that I really like about this book is there's a lot of really grounding emotional drama as well among the dungeon critters there's like some really solid friendship plots in there in addition to all of the sword and sorcery hijinks
4: yeah i think the core of any good fantasy story i mean world building is cool and everything but is like you have to care about the characters involved in order to like really sell that fantasy
3: yeah i feel like dungeon critters is extremely character driven Mm -hmm. focused just because that's my
4: focus that's the bread and butter yeah yeah i don't know
0: So tell me a
4: little bit about some of your
0: inspirations for this story.
4: Well, for this specific project, maybe back in 2015, we were playing a Pathfinder game with some friends, which is like basically D&D, but open source. And it was really fun to game with our friends, but we were really frustrated by the limitations of that type of system. Because not to get too into the nerd weeds here, but Pathfinder is mostly built for battle systems. And even though our GM was doing a really good job of like, you know, putting that together and trying to run a game and trying to let us be creative, we more were interested in, like, writing a story and making comics and drawing pictures and stuff. So from there, we, like, Sarah and I decided to branch off and try making a little comic, and we really liked that. So we just kind of that let that snowball from there.
3: Yeah, I mean, as for, like, other inspirations, I feel like a, a pretty obvious cultural touchstone is Redwall. We both, oh, yeah. like, grew up with reading Redwall. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of like the more inclusive version of it, I guess. And like our our ideal version of like when people think about Redwall, they're just like, what if it was, you know, like a little like has a little bit less like unfortunate metaphors. Yeah. And you know, a little bit funnier. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So we're talking a lot about plot and character, but of course this is a comic. And I was really impressed by your page layouts in this book you shift around panels and layer visual narrative elements really deftly and it makes such an interesting impact on the storytelling. Like it makes it really tight and I'm curious about how you landed on that particular visual style and how it affected your overall process for writing and drawing the book together.
4: The short answer is we love comics. I yeah. think it's the most powerful medium there is. Yeah. <laughs> the I, longer answer. Yeah, the longer answer is that, like, I don't know,
3: I get really, like, heated about the medium of comics and, like, the things that you can only do in the medium of a comic. And I, I don't know, I really like to play around with, pe- like, panel layouts. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing with um, with writing and drawing this book is that we don't write scripts, or at least, like, a traditional, like, just, like, text scripts. We always go straight to comic
4: thumbnails That's like, um, before you draw a comic page, typically what you'll do is draw like a very tiny version of it, like a very simple little sketch so you can know what's going to happen on the page. And I feel like the typical way to handle a comic is you write the script and then you do the thumbnail and then you do the final. But we kind of are writing and doing that tiny sketch at the same time because the, I guess this makes sense, the drawings are the writing because that's the way you tell the story. So that's very integral to how we write.
3: So the way that we collaborate is that we don't have like a strict, is that like Natalie writes and I draws, we both like co-write it. Mm -hmm. So typically Natalie does like a first pass of it, like a thumbnail and then uh, sends it over to me and then I take it and then I do my pass and then I send it back to her. And then we both like have like a final pass on it kind of, which sounds like it takes a super long time. I don't know. We manage it. it. Thumbnails are quick to draw. Basically, that was a very long way to say that I just, I'm always thinking about like how the panels will tell the story, like from the very beginning. And I'm like constantly thinking about it basically. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think you can really tell because the panels and the page layouts are so integral to the storytelling. I think in a lot of other comics I read, you can sort of tell when there's an a script that a creator starts with and then they do a thumbnail. But there's something about like the fluidity of the visuals in this book that I think really shows the work of what you're talking about. I am a little bit curious about these components of comics that you get really heated about. I don't know if you could like briefly elaborate on that a little bit.
3: I mean I feel like the like the mechanics of comics pacing and timing in comics and how you can read a page is extremely interesting. Like, every time I read, like, a really good... For example, like, Emily Carroll. Like, I think every single one of her comics are, like, immaculately paced, essentially. And, I like, at the end of, like, reading one of her comics I'm just, like, fist-pumping at the end of it because it's just, like... Because <laughs> it, it feels very much like this can only be told in this medium. And it's also, like, very ephemeral, I feel like, to say, like, oh, yeah, the pacing is good. Like, what does that mean? It's hard to quantify. I don't know. Like, something about the idea of, like writing with drawing is like very unique to comics also just like how you can play with also the idea of playing with like text and words like i i'm sure you've noticed that i also do a lot of word bubble stuff yeah which is also very unique to comics Mm -hmm. and i really like to play with like the mechanics of word bubbles (laughs) throughout dungeon
0: critters i noticed that yeah Mm because like
4: you don't have the versatility of like a voice actor or anything like that you have the picture so if you make like a wobbly balloon you can say oh this person's scared mm-hmm. or if like is such a good letter she's incredible <laughs> sorry I was just thinking about the um like little lettering jokes you'll do to be like this person is speaking fancily or this character has a softer voice
0: I noticed all the different fonts and the way fonts emphasize tone I think is really interesting in the book as well that's really cool You can tell that so much thought went into it. And it sounds like it's sort of ingrained in the way you do work.
3: Yeah, I'm always thinking about comics.
0: That's not a bad problem to have, honestly. Okay, so Dungeon Critters, fun quest, lots of hijinks. What do you hope readers will take away from your book?
3: I'm hoping that how fun it is and like the inclusive aspects and just like the general inviting vibe will make them want to like, I don't know, I really hope that they get, like, a very fun experience that they'll want to keep rereading. Because I feel like we also put in a lot of background jokes that lends itself to rereading. I I just want them to, like, have, like, a fun
4: little, I don't know, like, world that's fun. Yeah, I don't know. I want it to be a nice place that you can go, if that makes sense. That sounds very weird for, like, a comic. But it's just,
3: like, I feel like the way that we set up the book is very, like, the world building is there. But it's also very vague. like kind of intentionally so you can like imagine other adventures that's happening in there Mm -hmm. and also like the ones that we imply Mm -hmm. and stuff like that i just hope kids have a nice place to return to
0: yeah and that's a that's a really admirable thing to hope for a book i mean So much of fantasy is described as pure escapism and there's a lot of value in that. I think a lot of people sort of look down on it as trivial, but having like a happy little fun world with like a a cheeky sense of world building and some really solid friendships and like a lively sense of humor is just like such a, such a warm, comforting thing. And that's valuable.
3: Yeah. Like if I set this book back to like, we basically Oh, whenever I draw like a book that's aimed towards a younger audience, I try to imagine like if I send this book back in time to like little Sarah,
0: mm-hmm.
4: how much would she lose her mind over it? And like that's like the yeah, baby, definitely, or baby Natalie would definitely lose her mind over this book. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I've done. You were the third out of three interviews I've done this week, and every single one of you have said something similar. Mm-hmm. That the comics that you wrote are sort of for younger versions of yourselves which I think is such a fun little touch point yeah, yeah.
3: I feel like the characters especially I would have been very excited about because I feel like when I was a kid I was like desperate for more girl characters mm-hmm. that were like not just either a girl character or like
4: generic tough girl or whatever I think we get a lot of like good flavors of gender expression in this book yeah mm-hmm. um, I I don't know. That is also a thing that I really wanted as a kid.
3: Yeah.
0: So, can you tell me about a way that librarians or libraries have impacted your reading or writing life?
3: Well, my mom actually was a like an elementary school librarian for most of my life. So that's a pretty (laughs) very direct way that it affected my life. I just spent a lot of time in like like very specifically in elementary school library. Hmm. That's where my mom worked. So even when I was like a little bit older, I still would like look through what the kids were reading or like read a lot of YA and like picture books and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's what my mom
4: would bring home. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, I also spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid. I volunteered at my local public library all through high school. I think in a little bit of middle school. I don't know. I know. Actually, I do know. I think it's really important to have access to that, to that kind of just wealth of books. I think that's very important that that be accessible. Mm-hmm. I know that that was always a big inspiration point for me to be able to like just go get a big book of pictures of animals and look at that and draw from that.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think also, so my mom worked at the library and right next to the elementary school is also our local public library, which is very convenient. So I'd also walk over to the library a lot. And I, I feel like as a kid, like around that age, I di- couldn't really afford to buy a lot of books, but yeah. going to the library and actually being able to like read a comic like that's where i read bone yeah especially
4: graphic novels are like oh yeah <laughs> it's a library thing <laughs> yeah i guess this is also kind of related but whenever i was writing dungeon crawlers i was thinking of a very specific spot in my uh, hometown public library mm. i don't think it exists anymore cuz they renovated but they had like some shelving in the back that was like partially gapped from the wall so if you were a little kid you could squeeze behind there and go into the next section and <laughs> it always felt very narnia to like go back there <laughs> And then pick out a book from that section. Uh (laughs) So I was thinking of Dungeon Critters as something that I would be excited to find specifically there.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Okay, we're up to our last question here. So when you're not writing or drawing, what do you like to read?
4: I got deep into Discworld earlier this year. (laughs) Uh, Again, because I really liked them when I was a teen. (laughs) Um, What else did I read? We did a bunch of research, again, at our local public library to read a bunch of comics. Who wrote Our Dreams at Dusk? I really liked that one. Oh man, I cannot think of the name. Yeah, Our Dreams at Dusk. Our Please dream- Google Our Dreams at Dusk. It's a beautiful comic about this group that's like fixing houses and it's LGBTQ theme. It's beautiful. It feels really good. There's like these incredible visual metaphors.
3: Yeah, if you want to follow up on incredible visual metaphors and like some really top-notch paneling, that is a comic to read. hmm what else did we read? We read. I read uh, Oh, I read Hilda for the first time. Oh, um, yeah, that was really good. Hilda's
0: really good. Yeah, I like that one a lot.
3: Hilda's so good. That's also like if you want some really good paneling. I didn't really like. I also didn't know that much about Hilda, so I just grabbed the one that was there, which was the I guess the, the most recent one, the Stone Giant. Man, that one was really good. <laughs> I really like the mom character in that one in particular. Yeah, I feel like really good mom characters. Or I think they 're becoming more I guess plentiful, but it still feels like very special to find like a good mom character in mm-hmm. like some kids media yeah, because they 're so dominated by dads. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I read all of the Hilda books, and the mom character really comes into her own in some of the later installments in the series, and there 's like this one issue where suddenly the relationship between Hilda and, and her mom becomes way more interesting and like Hilda's dangerous adventuring gets scarier because her mom is there and worried about her and it was such like a fascinating emotional turn for the series I loved it
3: yeah yeah even like the central I feel like because I started with the most recent one I kind of like had to imply that that has happened but just like yeah but I don't know I went back and only read like the first two but you can kind of see that that's Coming because the mom wants a quiet life. (laughs) Her feral child just wants to run around the woods, which is also like very related. I don't know because I grew up in Pennsylvania, surrounded by the woods, so I was that kid that was running around doing stuff that I should not be doing, probably like (laughs) in the woods. And now, like if my cat gets outside, I'll like I me I will perish from anxiety.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's adorable. Okay. I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for talking today about Dungeon Critters. It's a fantastic book. Really, really engaging. I hope everybody reads it because it's just such a delight. Do you have a favorite character? Well, I love Juniper a lot because I'm definitely like the, oh, I don't know, guys. I think we should do more research first kind of person. Mm-hmm. But also I had a baby six months ago and her name is Juniper. Oh congratulations so double double reasons to love juniper but she's definitely my fave
4: oh thanks i don't know i like to ask people that whenever they've read anything i've written it's
3: yeah maybe
0: just for my own vanity yeah it's
4: it's, (laughs) i I love to log away what
3: people say is like who are their favorites Mm -hmm. it's a lot of goro yeah
0: Yeah. i mean goro's a close second (laughs) he's just so steadfast it's so nice yeah Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And we can't wait to read more of what you do. Thanks. Thank you again to Mike, John, Natalie, and Sarah for joining us today. And thanks again to our sponsor, Macmillan Children's Publishing Group for making this interview possible. This was a fun one. Thanks, everybody.